We are so thankful to have uh, Pastor Paul Carter with us here again today to minister God's word to us. Paul is the pastor at Cornerstone Baptist Church up in Orillia, so it's a great drive for them to come. He's brought his wife with him this morning as well. We're so pleased to have him. Paul's been a great friend of our church, uh, first through Pastor Dwayne. Uh, they've known each other for several years, but I know many of you know him through some podcasts that he does, uh, through his sermons. You keep telling me you go and listen to him. I hope you listen to ours as much as you seem to have been listening to his, but uh, it's great preaching, and we're so glad that you've come to join us again this morning, Paul. Come and minister to us. Well, it's great to be here. We actually didn't drive down. Uh, we drove up uh, this time. We were, uh, we were in Cincinnati. We went to see the Blue Jays in Cincinnati. And, uh, and drove up, and uh, happy to be here. This, uh, this church, I said to my wife, because this is my wife's first time here, I said it feels like a cross between uh, our main campus, Cornerstone Baptist Church, and the church we actually just planted. They started as a campus, and, uh, and then we just planted a, a group called RCC, Redeemer City Church. And it, uh, it feels very much like the same DNA, or some very similar DNA. It always feels like home, and and uh, bless you, and uh, so excited to see what God is doing in this place. If you have a Bible, uh, and I suspect you do, or at least they're somewhere nearby or handy or on your phone or wherever, if you could op open it to Matthew 5, 13 to 16, that would be wonderful. I want to talk to you today about building a community of contrast. For years, as I'm sure you know, the church has been involved in a tug of war with uh, the media, with the government, uh, with pretty much everyone, for control of the culture. Well, as I'm sure you know, we lost uh, in spectacular fashion. And, uh, and man, it happened fast. If you're my age, uh, then you know exactly how fast it happened. This, it may feel like, this new reality may feel like the air that you breathe, but it's, it's not the air we've always breathed as Christians. I've been at the church that I'm at for uh, 18 and a half years. And uh, it's been interesting over the course of that time to watch the change in terms of how the church is positioned in the culture. When I first arrived at the church, we, we used to be known as uh, the Christmas church in, in town because we did these massive, you know, wildly complex Christmas pageants and productions, and they would run for five nights. And, and it was interesting. The, the mayor, the MP, and the MPP would always call ahead to the office on the night that they were going to be there for the Christmas production so that I would know, so that I could m mention them by name and they could stand up and, and be recognized. Uh, there was political advantage in being at least nominally associated with the Christian church when I first started 18 years ago. Can I just let you know that doesn't happen anymore? Uh, something has changed, right? And, and it, it happened really fast. And it got worse over the course of COVID. I'm sure you know that. Um, COVID, I find, as opposed to starting a bunch of trends, really accelerated or brought to completion a bunch of, of trends. It was, and that's what pressure does, right? When you, when you put um, a pot lid on a pot that you're trying to boil, it just makes everything happen faster. I think that's, that's what happened with COVID. The Winnipeg Free Press, uh, just on the other side of COVID, released a study that had been conducted by uh, Angus Reid on the attitude of average Canadians towards religion in this country. It was absolutely fascinating. They were particularly interested in uh, where things stood now after the pandemic. They sensed that the pandemic was, was sort of a tipping point. Uh, 
Here's a line from the article. When asked which religion was more beneficial or negative, respondents named evangelical Christianity as the most damaging, followed by Islam and Catholicism. Isn't that fascinating? That's where we are in this culture, right? We've lost the tug of war for the culture, and we're lying face down in the mud wondering what in the world just happened. Now, there's actually a sense, I think, in which this is good news, because Christianity was never designed to operate at the center of the culture. It was designed to operate at the margins of the culture. And that's why, I don't, I don't know if you feel like this, but I feel like all of a sudden reading my Bible, it feels much more relevant. It feels like there's less cultural distance to, to cross. All this, because, because most of the Bible was written to people who were trying to figure out how to operate as a minority within a hostile context. And let's just be honest. Reading the Bible in 1980 probably felt strange. Like, what's all this, you know, blessed are you and people revile you and speak evil against you and, you know, malign you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. You're like, Jesus, what are you talking about? I remember as a, as a, as a kid, I started reading through the Bible, or I, I should phrase that more honestly, and I, I started trying to read through the Bible uh, every year as a 12-year-old. Uh, was not wildly successful as it, one of my first several attempts, I can promise you that, but... I remember reading, remember Jesus says, and will the Son of Man find faith when he comes to the earth? I remember looking around, and of course, you know, actually as a 12-year-old, I'm I'm reading that in in Bemis Point, New York, which is, you know, uh, sort of part of the Bible belt of of American evangelicalism, And, and I'm thinking, Jesus you're not awesome at predicting the future, right? Like, I, I'm surrounded. It's hard. You couldn't swing a cat and not hit a Christian. In Bemis Point, New York in 1985, you shouldn't swing a cat and hit anybody. <laughs> Who even said that? But, but all of a sudden now, doesn't the Bible feel like, yeah, okay, wait a second. Now, this is, this is where I'm at. And, and because the Bible was written to people like us, people trying to figure out how to be faithful, How do you swim against the current? How do you not get angry when when everybody's against you? What does it look like to suffer? How does that work? How do we be who we're supposed to be from the margins of society? I think finally we're there now. We get it. We're like, yeah, this is the new reality. But for most of my ministry career, we were fighting that reality. Once the gap started happening, right, once the culture and once we started separating, our initial response was not to embrace that reality. It was to try to overturn that reality, to figure out. And so for, I started ministry in 1994, and, and for the, I would say for the first, you know, tw- I'm going to say at least 10 or 15 years of my ministry, it felt like our mission, what we were all trying to do was bridge the gap. That was the, the language we used. If we could just figure out a way to narrow the gap between the church and the culture, then that would make it more likely that our friends and neighbors would, would kind of take, take the leap. And so we would, we would have conversations and say, well, you know what we got to do? We got to get rid of the organ because only, you know, only nobody else listens to the organ. And so we got to bring in the electric guitar and we got to pull up the old carpet because the old carpet smells old. And, and we got to get new carpet and we got to rearrange all our buildings. We got to do all, and, and I'm not saying that any of that was bad. I'm just saying that 
the effort to bridge the gap with the culture was a fool's errand. Because the, the reality is that the church and the culture, it's like they're, they're building their houses on two opposite sides of a giant fault line. And there's been some kind of massive earthquake underground, and we're drifting further and further apart. And so what happened is those who wanted to keep playing that game, those who were very committed to the game of bridging the gap, found themselves having to make bigger and bigger compromises in order to make it work. And somewhere along the line, the essence of Christianity was fundamentally lost. It was a fool's errand because the gap is real and the gap is growing. And actually, to be perfectly honest with you, I think maybe the gap is good. The gap might actually hold the key to unlocking an entirely new slash old approach to influence and outreach in the culture. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Hopefully, you have your Bible open to Matthew 5. 13 to 16. As you located that passage, as you flipped your pages, you probably noticed that it's part of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is not a sermon about how to get saved. It's a sermon about how saved people should live in the world. Uh, it's very important to understand that. The first uh, 14 verses, or sorry, first 12 verses are that part that we, we refer to sometimes as the Beatitudes. They tell us the expected character or the essential character of the Christian. And then the next four verses, which we're going to look at today, give us the expected influence of the Christian in the world. And it's to that topic we turn our attention this morning. So hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In this brief challenge, Jesus makes use of two overlapping metaphors. They would have been, of course, very common metaphors to people living in those days and still accessible, I would think, to people living today. These metaphors aren't complicated, but I'll just take a minute and walk you through them. He begins, of course, with the metaphor of salt. You are the salt of the earth, he says. Now, salt in the first century world was used primarily for preserving meat. I'm sure you can imagine that if you've ever been to Israel or ever been anywhere hot. Uh, if you want meat to last more than a couple of hours in a culture like that, then you need to figure out a way to preserve it. And they didn't have refrigerators. Uh, looking out over this group, it looks to me like most of you are uh, very young, which is great, um, but that means you probably have no idea how recent refrigeration is, household refrigeration. Um, you, I'm going to be referring a, a couple times to a book written by Jean Twenge. Uh, Jean Twenge is not a Christian, but um, she's written a really important book, trying, uh, trying to help people understand why it feels like the culture is changing so rapidly, uh, because we all feel that way. Whether you're Christian or not, we feel that way. And uh, she's not a Christian, as I said, but her specialty is actually on studying how technology and uh, shared cultural events shape how people think and how they relate to one another. And uh, it's very interesting. She, she talks about how we, don't, we take technology for granted. Technology is the air we breathe. But she says, think about the change, for example, that appliances made to the life of women. So I am old enough to remember um, ice boxes. 
So when I was a kid, uh, cottages were where your old appliances went to die, right? So if you got a new toaster, you took your old toaster up to the cottage, right? I don't know if that still happens, but, um, and my grandparents, when I was a kid, had a cottage on Orr Lake, and, uh, and so they had just bought a refrigerator when I was a kid, and they took the old icebox up to the cottage. So as a kid at the cottage, I, I used an icebox. I'm just out of curiosity, is there anyone else in the room who has ever used an icebox? Yeah, a couple. I, by the way, I, I told this story um, at, a, at another church that was mostly seniors, and almost every hand in the room went, went up. And, and that'll give you an idea of how, how fast the world has changed. The world changed when all of a sudden women had refrigerators and uh, laundry machines. Do you know, my grandmother used to spend six hours a day doing laundry. Right now, you know, every other day, you throw a bunch of stuff in, you close it, and you go on YouTube, right? Like, it, that's a whole new world, right? And I'm not saying only women do that. I, you know, I'm saying that's, that's one of the big changes, is women have entered the workplace largely because we have, we have appliances now. And it doesn't take six hours a day to do laundry, so you can do other things. If you are not spending six hours a day doing laundry, you're living a very different life than your grandmother, is my point. Technology, it, it changes things. Refrigerators made, made a huge difference. If you go back just a couple of generations, most of the year, but not all of the year, you've got an ice, a functioning icebox in your home. But you go back even a few generations before that, or you live in a place where ice is not readily available, then what do you do? How do you, how do you keep meat more than a couple of hours? Well, you cure it in salt. Okay? So when Jesus says to people, you're the salt of the earth, the primary meaning that metaphor would have to them is that our job is to keep the culture from decaying. What they're hearing is that the world is like a hunk of meat on a hot day. It is on a trajectory of decline. Our job is to slow that process. So what they were hearing is that, hey, listen, it's your job not to go along with all the instincts and inclinations of the culture. Because the instincts and inclinations of the culture lead to death. There, have you ever seen like kids roll, roll down a hill and do that whole barrel roll? That's the culture. They don't realize it, but every decision they make is like the slinky going down the staircase, right? And your job is to say no. Your job is to say, whoa, 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 let's think about this. Slow down. That's the primary meaning of the metaphor. That's what people would have heard. Oh, okay. Our job is to slow the descent of the culture into death. But even in the ancient world, there's another, there's another dimension to, to this metaphor, uh, and that's the dimension of taste. So salt, just like that's, that's really the only thing we think of today. We think of taste. They would have thought of that, but they would have thought about it second. Uh, so you can find in the Bible, you can find references to salt for taste. So Job 6.6, 6, for example, says, can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? So when Jesus says to his disciples, you're the salt of the earth, he means also they bring a certain flavor. They bring a, a certain something. Uh, when they live their lives, when they, when they do the Jesus thing in the culture, they are looking better. They are looking more alive. They are bringing a certain something. And a certain something that will be noticed 
in the neighborhood. It's like when you're when your next door neighbor lights up the barbecue and starts cooking something good uh, and you smell that and all of a sudden you're thinking, you know what, maybe neighborhood outreach is a good idea, right? I'll go over there, tell them about Jesus, see if there's any extra steak, right? There's a certain smell, there's a certain aroma that gathers people in. That's the idea. So when we're talking about being the salt of the earth, we're talking about being different, we're talking about being undecaying, we're talking about being attractive, we're talking about being compelling. That's how salt works. And when salt doesn't work, then it's good for nothing. Jesus said that too. He said, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under feet. Well, how do, so how does salt lose its taste? If you know anything about uh, salt, actually, from a chemical perspective, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily degrade. It's not known for degrading. But it is, it's possible for it to be adulterated. And in the ancient world, the most common way for salt to be adulterated is for it to mix with sand. That's not hard to imagine, is it? Like you've got a bowl of salt, you know, sitting on a table where you're going to prepare some, uh, some fish and, and then some sand blows through the house and now all of a sudden that salt is useless. And so if it mixes with sand, it has to be thrown out. It's good for nothing except maybe as grit underneath people's feet. So that metaphor, again, is a warning to be careful about your mixtures to be careful about what you allow to blow into your life because it can undermine your usefulness. All right, that's salt. What about light? Jesus said, with the salt of the earth and the light of the world. What do you mean by that? Well, we should notice, first of all, in the text that Jesus equates the light that we shine with the works that we do. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. There's the, the equivalency. And give glory to your Father who's in heaven. That's basically the flip side of what Jesus says in John 3, 19, there he says, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So this whole light and dark thing is about works. Jesus is saying that the works of the world are death and darkness. The works of my disciples are supposed to be light and life. There's supposed to be a qualitative difference between the way that we live and the stuff that we do. That's the point. So putting this all together, the expected influence of the Christian in the world is fundamentally one of contrast, <laughs> which means we spent the last 20 years trying to narrow the gap between the church and the culture when actually, according to Jesus, the gap is good for the gospel. The assumption in the Bible is that if we live quantitatively and qualitatively different lives than those around us, we will create a community of contrast. We will offer a compelling alternative. And God will use that to attract people, right? Remember Jesus said a city on a hill cannot be hidden? Jesus is going to use that to draw people in. When our fragrance wafts over the fence, the neighbors are going to pop their heads up over the fence and wonder what's cooking, wonder what's going on. The Apostle Paul spoke in these terms in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 to 16, he said, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. So the interesting thing about this is that when we do that, when we create a, a wafting influence, the Bible warns us that people are going to respond in two different ways. People are going to receive that in two different ways. To some, that's going to smell like death. 
And you know that, right? Like to some, Christianity smells like death. And you know that if you're involved in sharing your faith. I would say I've lived, I came onto the scene, you know, as an active, involved Christian at the end of an era. And then I lived the majority of my ministry career through another era. And now I'm entering into a third era and, and to which I'm not a native, but I'm trying to figure it out. But so I'm talking about evangelism and apologetics. When I, when I started, so as a teenager, I remember going to conferences because the, the apologetic burden when I was a, a young teen was convincing people that, that God is real, that God is true, that, this, that, that, that what the Bible says is, is intellectually defensible. So the burden was convincing people that Christianity is true. Then I would say for about the last 20 years, the burden has been convincing people that Christianity is good, which is a different conversation. But all of a sudden, there's a new conversation in the air that I'm just trying to orient myself to, and it's this idea that Christianity is safe. That's just come up in the last three or four years. Whole, whole different world. My, my, my point is, though, our friends and neighbors are going to receive and react to our fragrance in different ways. Some people smell what we're cooking, and it smells like abuse, misogyny, homophobia, and racism. Do you know that? It smells like death, and they're going to call the cops. But to others of our friends and neighbors, it smells like life, and they're going to draw near and ask questions. So it's not going to attract everybody. We need to be realistic about that. But it is going to attract some. Some are going to have their interest piqued. Some are going to be given hope. Some are going to smell life and draw near and ask questions. And when they do, we need to be prepared to speak. That is the exact strategy that is commended by Peter to his people. In 1 Peter 3, 15 to 16, he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good work, by the way, notice there, there's an assumption of different responses. So that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So Peter is assuming that his people are noticeable as Christians. That's step one, right? Here's a little, here's a little heart check. Ask yourself this question. Does anyone I work with or does anyone I go to school with know that I'm a follower of Jesus? Am I noticeably different in work and conduct from the people I live among? Because this whole strategy assumes that you are out as a Christian. And so Peter's assuming that his people are out, that they're noticeable in the culture. He assumes that people are seeing and smelling them. And he assumes that some people are drawing near to ask questions. And so he tells his people, be prepared for that. Be prepared to defend the Christian worldview. Well, I should say, be prepared to explain first the Christian worldview, and then to defend it, and then to make it pure, beautiful. Do all this, though, of course, with gentleness and respect. Don't dunk on people. Don't make it your life ambition to own the libs, right? Just live good lives, be different, answer questions, 
point to Jesus. That's the strategy. That was the first century approach to influence and outreach in the culture. And that's how you do it. That's how you do it as a minority group living inside a hostile culture, which is exactly where we are again now as Christians in Canada. So how do we shift gears? Because this is not how we've been doing it. Uh, For most of my life, we were in the driver's seat, or at least in the passenger seat. We were in the front seat of the car. Right now, we're hanging onto the bumper for dear life. Uh, So big, big change. How do we change our strategy in light of our new situation? That's what I'm asking. Now, all of that was exposition, right? Preaching is not rocket science. Um, You know, sometimes we, we, we treat preaching like it's alchemy, right? Like there's some magic formula. Preaching is about as complicated as washing your hair. I, I apologize to the other pastors in the room, but you can back me up. It's about as complicated as washing your hair. Have you ever wa- read the, the bottle, the instructions for washing your hair? By the way, how great is it they print instructions for washing your hair on the bottle of shampoo? I find that very helpful. Three steps to the process, right? Lather, rinse, repeat. Uh, that's washing your hair. Well, preaching is about as complicated as that. Read the text, explain the text, apply the text. So that's where we're at now. We're at the application part of the process, but it's a little tricky. I'm a guest preacher, right? Actually, being a guest preacher is the greatest gig of all time because I can say whatever I want, and then I leave. And, you know, you, you, you got to figure it out. But So I'm very aware of that dynamic uh, this morning. I'm not uh, recommending policy right now. I'm just trying to think creatively. Uh, but what would it look like for the church in, in this moment to put these principles into practice? How could we be compelling? How could we be distinct? What are some really important ways for us to actually take a step away from the culture, right? For the first 20 years of my ministry, everybody was talking about how we can bridge the gap. Now I'm actually thinking, you know what? In a couple places, it would be good for us to take a full step away from the culture and to own that gap and to understand that actually across that gap, we're going to have our best conversations. So, so what are some ways that, that we could do that? How can we create a community contrast? That's what I'm asking. I think the first thing we should do is this. Build robust, multi-generational, in-person congregations. That's the worst title ever. Bless you to whoever makes these slides. Um, I thought maybe you'd even try to like, correct that because it's terrible. But it's clunky, but every word there is important. Robust, multi-generational, in-person congregations. Let me walk you through why I think that everywhere there is important. Uh, Young people today are lonelier than they have ever been. Jean Twenge, I mentioned her before, in her book Generations notes that Gen Z, young people, which is half the people in this room, spend less time in person with friends and have fewer multi-generational connections than any generation in recent history. She quotes one of the thousands of young people surveyed for her study. She had access to um, all these university intake forms and all these psychological profiles, and then she did her own interview with countless young people. She, She quotes one of them as saying, the internet has made it so easy to gratify basic social and sexual needs that there's far less incentive to go out in the meat world and chase those things the meat world. By the way, that's where you are right now. You're out in the meat world, right? Look at the, don't look right at them, but sort of out of the corner of your eye, look at the person next to you. That's a hanger for meat. 
right there, and you're breathing in their air, right? Young people find what you are doing right now, just this, massively unusual, the meat world. Young people today, of course, do most of their social interacting online through their phones, through apps. Uh, they do their banking, their shopping, they pay their taxes, many of them work remotely. So they spend less time with actual people than any previous generation in human history. They spend less time looking into actual faces. It, <laughs> this is interesting. My wife and I one time took a babysitter with us. We were driving to a mini OE fundraiser. And uh, so we took a babysitter, she was a teenager. And we noticed that she was very awkwardly maintaining eye contact. We stopped for dinner. And like, she was just very fixedly and rigidly maintaining eye contact. And it freaked us out. We, so we said, Amanda, what are you doing? And she said, my mom told me that I, I'm not very good at maintaining eye contact, so I'm really working on it. And we're like, okay, well, back it up, back it down, dial it down just a little bit, because it's too much. But she was like 100%, because young people just, they, they literally have not learned all the social cues that we, older people picked up instinctively. They spend less time looking in actual faces. Less time speaking in full sentences. Less time shaking hands. Less time listening. Less time relating to real people than any previous generation in human history. And not surprisingly, Twenge reports the teen suicide rate nearly doubled between 2007 and 2019. That's astonishing. Now, why might that be? Well, maybe because as the Bible says, it's not good that the man should be alone, right? Human beings were not created for isolation. They were not created to have their primary interface with a machine. Loneliness is killing people. So if we can build congregations, by the way, what a great word. So we use all these churchy words and we don't know what they mean, right? We just say glory, right? Maranatha, hallelujah. Nobody knows what any of those words mean. So don't feel bad if you don't know what they mean. But you know, congregation. Literally, what the word means is to bring people together. That's what, a, that's what a church is. It's a congregation. If we can build congregations that are robustly relational, that are low-tech, not no-tech. Literally, my wife and I just said, we got to figure out how to use those QR codes to make it easier for people to sign up for stuff. Because our church is terrible at signing up. 100 people will show or will, will sign up for an event, and then 400 people will show up, and you're like, okay, well, we don't have enough hot dogs. Uh, so I'm not opposed to technology, but, but church should be a place of low tech, a bit of a refuge from technology. You know, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm going to leave. I'm going to get in my car in a few minutes and drive away. So I'll just throw this out. I think it would be good if young people made an effort to work with a paper Bible, just, just to get in the habit of leaving your phone in the car so that the two hours you spend in this building could be, could be lower tech. Uh, just because it'll, because I know what you do. Like whenever I go into a social situation where I feel awkward, and I'm 49 years old, right? So I've learned this from you, thanks. Uh, but I mean, I'm not even good at this stuff. Like this is your bread and butter. But when I go into a situation where I'm feeling awkward, I look at my phone to avoid awkward social interactions. So if that phone was in the car, maybe you would look in faces. Maybe you would meet somebody who is older than you who doesn't even own a phone or who owns a phone but doesn't know how to use it, and, and they would talk to you, and, and you would have a human interaction, and maybe that would be healing for your soul.
something to think about. If we can do that, my, I was talking to a couple of my teenagers. We have five kids. They go from 26 down to 11, so we have a lot of people. And uh, a couple of our teenagers were saying, they were saying to us that the fact that, that they, <laughs> they said, we're better at talking, this is what they said, so don't be offended. They said, we're better at talking to old people than all of our friends because you guys drag us to church every Sunday and there's old people there and they always talk to us. And, uh, and, and so I'm like, okay, where's the story going? And they said, but as a result, now when we apply for jobs, we know how to make eye contact. We know how to talk to old people. So they're like, we have a full leg up on all our friends who are terrified of old people. I'm like, all right, well, we brought you to church so that you'd love Jesus. But as a side benefit, if old people don't freak you out, that's good. But if we can do this, if we can build multi-generational, robustly personal communities and congregations, I think that's a long-term strategy because I think in 20 years, that's going to look like life to a lot of people surrounded by death. Secondly, if you want to build a community of contrast in this culture, one simple thing you can do is get married reasonably young. Now, remember, I'm doing application, not exposition. There's no verse in the Bible that says what age you got to be when you get married. I'm just saying, though, if you want to look different than the people around you, here's something you could do. Because North American marriage rates are at their lowest rate in recorded history. Again, according to Twenge's research, millennials have not embraced marriage or childbearing at anything near historic levels. They're delaying marriage by almost a decade and are having far fewer children than any generation in North American history. Now, these are her words. Millennials, of course, were raised to think about themselves. <laughs> Nothing gets in the way of your selfish game like marriage and children. And all the parents said, amen. Quoting from Twenge, she says, when younger adults who don't want children are asked why, the majority in national polls name not financial issues or climate change, but reasons centered on individualism, such as the desire for more leisure time, wanting more personal independence, and the choice-based matter of fact, I just don't want them. Those are millennials, people who are aged 29 to 43 right now. And things are actually way worse with Gen Z. The oldest Gen Zers are a couple years away from their 30th birthday, and they are predicted, it's predicted that they will have the fewest children of any generation in human history. The average marriage age right now in North America is 31 for men and 28 for females. And the predictions as to what that will do to the fertility rate in North America are pretty staggering. Of course, you can only wait so long to have children, right? Uh, and lots of millennials, when they're surveyed, they say, well, you know, maybe I haven't decided yet. Maybe I'll get married. That's great. But the thing is, deciding at 40 that you might want to get married and have kids is a little bit like deciding you need to learn to swim after you fall off the side of a cruise ship. Uh, that might work out for you, uh, but it might not. So if young people in the church get married young and have multiple children, then 20 years from now, we're going to look like life. By the way, this room looks like life, and it, particularly more so before the, the kids left. And by the way, we let the kids out halfway through the service as well. This right now is a community of contrast. A lot of young people walking around with kids. Do you know how weird you are? <laughs> Seriously. And, and do you know that there is no other place where there'd be a gathering like this anywhere but the church? My son got married seven weeks ago. He got married on July 1st. He was 20 years old, or 21 years old, I should say, on his wedding day. 
all that he plays for, well, he did play for Barry FC until he got married uh, and went on his honeymoon, but all the guys on his soccer team think he's nuts. Like 21 years old, like an elite athlete, what are you doing? And what is he doing, right? Well, he's, he's doing something right now that looks crazy. But 20 years from now, I'm guessing he's having a lot of conversations. Again, long-term strategy here. Third thing we could do, and I'll start moving quick. We, we could embrace wisdom, discipline, and correction. A couple of years ago, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt wrote a fantastic book called The Coddling of the American Mind. You should read it. Uh, they're not Christians either. But uh, they, are, they were fascinated. They were tracking the rise of safe spaces and cancel culture on American university campuses. So something weird happened in the early 2000s, right around 2010. Well, they, I think they, they traced it at 2007, 8, 9, but then it reached a peak in 2010. And uh, what they noticed was, for most of American history, it had been the students clamoring for free speech on university campuses and the faculty pushing back and saying, oh, you know, let's not go crazy here. But all of a sudden, it switched in like 2008, 9, 10, and the students were saying, we don't want to hear anything that makes us feel nervous or sad. We, we don't want to be exposed to ideas that challenge what we already believe. And it was the faculty and the teachers saying, wait a second, isn't the purpose of education for, for you to be challenged, for you to see things, for you to wrestle, for you to be unsettled? Isn't that why you go to school? And the kids are saying, no. And P.S., I need a room with green M&Ms and a cat because I don't feel safe here anymore. And they were trying to figure out what has happened. How did we get here? No one in our culture wants to encounter contrary views. Nobody wants to hear the word no, and nobody wants to learn anything from people over 30. All right, well, let me know how that turns out. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The entire burden of the book of Proverbs is to convince the royal son that he will live better and rule more wisely if he constrains his instincts and submits to instruction and correction. That's wisdom. Wisdom is about understanding that we live in a moral universe that is governed by a holy God, and therefore there is a right and wrong way of doing things. There are ways that lead to life, and there are ways that lead to death, and wisdom is about knowing which is which. Now, as Lukianov and Haight clearly demonstrated, not many people in our culture want to hear that right now. And so if we can raise our young people with an expectation of instruction and correction, like say, kids, come to church because older people will rebuke you. That's got to be part of the pitch. And this will make you stronger, more resilient, and more likely to land on paths that lead to life. This is going to create contrast because our culture right now has gone off-roading. We are trying things that have never been tried by any culture in human history, and we have no idea where this is all going. Take the LGBTQ movement for just a moment. And I'm not going to say much about that. I'm just really right now commenting on how fast that ideology, that change has taken over our culture. Again, it feels like the air we breathe right now. It has not always been. There was a show called The West Wing. It, I, I reference this not because I think this is not the coolest show on TV right now, but for whatever reason, it is making a comeback through um, streaming services. And now all of a sudden you're meeting young people who are watching the West Wing, which is 
interesting. It was wildly popular from 1999 to 2006. It's a show about American politics. I'm sure there's a nostalgia thing. It's like American politics before everyone lost their minds. And so if you're interested in that, you might want to stream the show. But there's an interesting episode. It's a, now, it's a Democratic presidency, so it's a left-leaning presidency in the show. And the policy advisor, the domestic policy advisor, has a meeting with a gay Republican congressman. And he's trying to get him to co-sponsor a bill that would legalize gay marriage. And the gay Republican congressman says, hey, listen, I'm with you on this, but I don't want to disrupt the agenda, and, and I don't want to start a fight we're destined to lose because there is nowhere near the public support in America for gay marriage. This is a losing battle, and I don't think losing this battle helps the cause. And so the show kind of ends with, you know, the Democratic president and his advisor bemoaning the fact that there just isn't enough support to get this legislation passed. And it's a bit of a passive browbeating, right? All the viewers are supposed to be like, yes, if only we weren't such, you know, country bumpkin hicks uh, so backwards, then we could have a better society, but that'll never happen. That will never happen. That will never happen, they bemoaned in 2002. And of course, less than 20 years later, it, it, it did happen. It, it, gay marriage in, in America went from not nearly enough support to near total overwhelming support in 18 years. Now, there is no precedent for that speed of cultural change. What happens to a society when you, you completely undermine historic concepts of gender and when you completely denigrate a way of sexuality that has led to health, fertility, and stability for children for thousands and thousands of years? We're starting to see. Do you know that one in seven high school students now in North America identify as something other than heterosexual? One in seven. That's astonishing. We don't know where this is going. But I'm guessing we find out in 20 years or so. And so again, if we can walk on the old paths, if we can dig again the wells of our father Abraham, if we can embrace wisdom, if we can listen to nature, if we can deal in reality, if we can celebrate instruction and embrace correction, then I think we can build something that will actually grow in attractiveness over coming decades. Again, long-term strategy. Fourth thing we can do is welcome the stranger. As I'm sure you all know, Canada plans to bring in about 500,000 immigrants a year over the next several years, and that number will certainly be adjusted upward because Canadians are not having kids. Now, this will almost certainly lead to political and social chaos, as it has already begun to do. The housing crisis is largely connected to this ambitious target. And this is starting to actually undermine Canadians' historically positive attitude towards immigration. But here's the thing. If the church can have a welcoming and loving attitude, as we are commanded to do, towards the stranger and the sojourner, then we're going to have a tremendous opportunity. You must be careful not to allow your political perspective and your economic perspective to override your missiological ambitions. Can I tell you, that'll be the great challenge for Canadians in the next decade, Canadian Christians. Immigration might make your house more expensive, or it might make it difficult for you to buy a house, right? But that's not the fault of the individual immigrant. And, and if, if the church can be a place where we welcome the stranger, we're going to have a tremendous opportunity, because most of these immigrants are actually coming from cultures 
that are more conservative and more open to religion than Canada. In fact, most of the immigrants coming to this culture are as concerned with our social trajectory as you are. And they come from places where multi-generational robust community is the norm. So if you can build multi-generational robust community and you can be open and welcome to the stranger, then the church is going to be well positioned for influence in this culture. And then lastly, if you want to build a community contrast, then worship God. That's the strangest thing you can do in this culture. Millennials have abandoned religion, both personal and institutional, at never-before-seen levels. They are the least religious generation in North American history. Why is religion not attractive to millennials? Twenge answers, in short, because it is not compatible with individualism. And individualism is millennials' core value above all else. And again, the early data for Gen Z is even worse. Individualism is the new religion. Individualism means prioritizing the self. It means placing yourself at the center of the universe. So idolatry, again, Christians use lots of big words. We don't always explain them. Idolatry is when we take a good thing and make it a God thing. Meaning, when you take something that's supposed to be in your solar system and you put it in the sunspot, right? Everybody, like, for example, are you all happy that Jupiter is in the solar system? Well, you should be, because it's why we don't get hit by asteroids a lot, uh, right? So it's great when, you know, that, that large gravity item is, is out there. Good. What would happen, though, with our universe if, if Jupiter and the sun switched places? The answer, you don't have to have taken physics at university to know the answer is very bad things. Uh, right? And if you didn't take physics and you're lost right now, just imagine that I'm holding a blanket. I'm holding two corners of a blanket, and this fellow here is holding the other two corners of the blanket, and we throw a bowling ball onto the blanket. Where does the bowling ball go? Into the center and down. Heaviest things go in the middle. Idolatry is when you put things that are not the heaviest thing, that, that should not be the heaviest thing, you put it in the center. So what happens if you take a marble and you try to get it at the center and you put the bowling ball back where the marble was? Bowling ball runs into the marble, right? That's why in the Bible, God is always destroying the idols of the nations. And that's why he, anything you put in the center of your life, you make that thing an enemy of God. Be careful, right? Because <laughs> one of the primary idols in North American society is our children. But if you could put God in the center of your life, all your neighbors around you are putting themselves at the center. They are absolutizing their desires, their beliefs, their orientations. Meaning, what we, we say the word of God is authoritative. They say my desires, my identity, my orientation. You know, the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who could know it? Meaning, the last thing you should put at the center, the last thing you should treat as authoritative is your own desires. But if you can put God at the center, if you can live for God and serve others then you are going to be as remarkable as a unicorn on roller skates in this culture. If the word of God is your final authority, not your desires or your opinions, your internal orientations or your peer group, you're going to have conversations. If you tithe of your time, your talent, and your treasure so as to serve God and others as opposed to spending everything you have on yourself, then you're going to have conversations. Your neighbors are going to climb over the fence to find out what's cooking in your backyard. They're going to ask you questions. They're going to want to know what is going on. So be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have in Christ. 
but do it with gentleness and respect. Oh, God, help. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we sense a great opportunity coming for us, for the church. Uh, It will be a little harder than it's been in the past, but also, Lord, a little better, a little uh, more fruitful, we believe. But Lord, who is sufficient for these things? These are not things we can do in our own strength. And so, Lord, we need to be in right relationship with you through Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here whose universe is out of order, I pray right now under the conviction of the Holy Spirit that through repentance and faith, they would remove whatever is at the center that ought not to be, and they would enthrone Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior right now so that they could begin receiving grace and help to live as they should in this world as his disciples. Lord, may we be salt and light. May we be different, but may we be attractive and compelling. And Lord, help us when we have these opportunities, when people come and when they ask, oh God, help us to point them towards Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us to speak well and winsomely of Jesus, we ask in his precious name.